Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today is part two of our discussion of prostate cancer. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, and today we're going to be joined by Gary Kim. He is a prostate cancer survivor and a facilitator for the Us Two Prostate Cancer Support Group. And he's going to be sharing his story and some of the advanced knowledge that he has about prostate cancer. Now, according to the CDC, out of every 100 men, 13% will get prostate cancer in their lifetime. It has accounted for approximately 1.5 million cases diagnosed worldwide in 2020. The American Cancer Society estimates for 2023 are about 288,000 new cases throughout the United States and a little under 35,000 deaths from this diagnosis. So it is something that we do want to keep on our radar. It's actually after skin cancer. It is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men in the United States. So today we're going to be doing part two of our prostate cancer discussion. And Gary Kim is here. Thank you for joining me today on The Body Show. Uh, Thank you. I enjoy being here. Now, last week we heard from Paul and we heard from Ronald, and they were telling us the story of how they had a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Ronald's still receiving treatments right now, almost completed with chemotherapy. And, you know, he was mentioning that he had once heard Paul give a talk about having prostate cancer. And I know that when you hear you have cancer, a lot of thoughts go through your head, and you've been down this road yourself. What are some of the initial things that are important for men to know if they have an elevated PSA and they it's determined that they have prostate cancer, usually through a biopsy or through some other sort of diagnostic method. What's What are some of the basics that you encourage men to think about? Uh, well, I think the the first thing uh, today, in today's uh, world, uh, MRI has come along, and uh, that has made it, uh, given the, the doctors a little bit more ability to get more information about the cancer uh, in the gland, and uh, you could even ab- avoid a, a biopsy if you do an MRI first, and the MRI indicates that there are no lesions present, even though the PSA may be elevated. Uh, on the other hand, if the MRI is taken and it shows that you have lesions present in the uh, prostate gland, then at that time it would warrant the biopsy. Uh, what is important about the MRI is that it would give the doctor some idea as to where they would take their biopsy uh, samples from and also give them some idea as to how many samples they would take. And so then once you get the biopsy done, uh, you'll you'll end up getting uh, what is called a pathology report, the results of the biopsy. And I think it's very important at that point that each man try to understand as much as he can about their own particular cancer. Every man's cancer uh, is unique. Uh, it's unique in many, many, many ways uh, in terms of the uh, genetic mutations that may cause the cancer, the number of lesions in the gland, the aggressiveness of each lesion, the volume of cancer, the proximity of the lesions to the prostate wall, which may indicate some degree of metastasis. So there are many things that would differ from man to man uh, on on the uh, pathology report. So it's important that each man 
try to understand what the pathology report is saying and, and get an understanding of what their cancer is like. Now, when people go to see their doctor, sometimes they don't have a list of questions or they don't know what questions to ask. You just mentioned a lot of information about what to get on a pathology report. And do you find that there are certain ways that, that men can educate themselves a little bit about what questions they even need to ask? Sure. Um, one thing, obviously, you can do is, is do your own research through the Internet. Um, that's one source of information. Um, there's a lot of literature out there uh, on the Internet, videos that you can watch. Uh, one thing that I think you can learn from uh, is, is to join a support group like ours, uh, talk to other men, uh, and, and see what are the things that they need to think about in terms of uh, decision-making because I think when you first get diagnosed, there's a lot of anxiety. And I, I think what helps to alleviate that anxiety to me is knowledge. And the more you understand about prostate cancer and the more you learn about diagnostic and treatment options, uh, that will help lessen the, diagno uh, the anxiety and, and kind of give you a leg up on deciding what to do. Well, and I think the US2 support group is unique in the sense that it's not, you know, it, it may not be the classic traditional support group people think about. It's really a collection and gathering of men who have all had their own individualized, personalized experience, and they're just sharing their experience because sometimes it's nice to know if somebody's been through radiation, what type of radiation, how long were their treatments, were there side effects, how did they handle those side effects? Some of those things, you know, physicians don't think about because it may not be something either they've experienced mm -hmm. it or they may not know how to tell somebody what to do with some of the some of the personal effects that there may be questions about. So when you discuss this with other people at the US2 Prostate Cancer Support Group, what sort of questions do you often have or that you hear that people have? about what they should do for themselves? Do they often join your group when they've just gotten a diagnosis and need some direction? I think when uh, men join our support group, we, we get varied questions because uh, in some cases, men have some men have done their own research, and so they come in with some degree of education. Other men come in kind of cold without having done any. Um, so we get a wide range of, of questions. Um, I think, though, what it comes down to is we they try to explain to us what their situation is in terms of PSA, in terms of Gleason score, um, and uh, the stage of the cancer that they have. And then we try to fill in the blanks with uh, what options are available to them. Uh, I find that, you know, um, in all defense of in doctors, they just, in my opinion, they don't have enough time uh, with uh, the shortage of doctors there are today and, and the patient overload. Uh, doctors just don't have enough time, in, in my opinion, to lay out all of the different options that are available to a, uh, uh, a patient. And uh, so you do have the, the more common uh, recommendations like surgery and radiation. But even within that umbrella, you could have subtypes and then you could have treatment options that are outside of those two 
that would apply to anyone's uh, particular uh, cancer. So, yeah, we try to help men kind of sort that all out and kind of guide them. We don't tell them what to do, but we hopefully we give them more options. And then we try to explain uh, the the logic or the the basis for different treatment options that might apply to them. Because... Uh, if somebody's on active surveillance, uh, that would be a treatment option completely different than somebody that's got uh, advanced stage uh, cancer. And so especially if it's metastasized outside the gland. So each cancer is a little bit different, and the treatment options that would apply to that would, would also differ. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Gary Kim about the different options available to men and what are some of the choices that he made and what are some ways that we can help educate one another so that if there are ways that people, unfortunately, loved ones get diagnosed with prostate cancer, or you yourself get a diagnosis, you know where to go next to get great information and also to get amazing treatment that can be right here locally in the islands and may also be coordinated with places on the mainland. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Gary Kim with me. He is a prostate cancer survivor, facilitator of the US2 Prostate Cancer Support Group. And it has been my pleasure for the last several years to have men from the Hawaii Prostate Cancer Coalition and the US2 Support Group contact me every August to say September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. What can we do to get the word out? So thank you for joining us again today, uh, Gary Kim, and sharing with us your information and your experience on how things have transpired for you. Now, we we often have situations where there are some advances in what's available now in the islands compared to what might have been here 20 years ago. And there are some new advances with different types of scans and various different types of ways to monitor prostate cancer. What are some of the advances that you've seen become available locally right here in the islands? Um, in terms of advances, I think the, 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 the biggest change in the uh, prostate cancer treatment landscape in, say, the last 10 years is the emergence of MRI and the uh, PET imaging. MRI, uh, with the arrival of MRI, it's allowed us to see prostate cancer within the prostate gland itself. Uh, and it, the uh, MRI has just uh, evolved over the last so many years, and it's been used in multiple ways right now, uh, not only for uh, doing uh, biopsy samples. Uh, it can be used to tell a, a person whether they should go on active surveillance or not. Um, it can also be used, uh, we have an option today that for men that have low-grade cancer, uh, Gleason 6s or low-grade uh, Gleason 7s, they could do something called focal therapy, which is wasn't an option at all 10 years ago. And this is a situation where you identify lesions within the prostate gland, and you just treat the lesions without treating the entire gland. And there are like five different ways now to, uh, to do that. 
there is some risk in there of having the cancer come back if you do that, but at least it gives that person an option to do that. So that's another thing that, that MRI has come along. Uh, just in the last two years, uh, there's a new type of equipment out there for radiation that's incorporating MRI into it, uh, such that uh, as the prostate gland moves uh, during treatment, you have an MRI uh, concept in there that will shut the radiation down if the prostate gland moves out of outside the scope of the radiation. That concept will help to minimize side effects because you're not uh, exposing the healthy tissue cells to uh, unnecessary radiation. So MRI has just been used in so many different ways. And then came along PET imaging. Uh, PET imaging has really uh, allowed doctors to see if cancer, one, first of all, if cancer has metastasized outside of the gland, and that will significantly affect treatment options. And then if it has metastasized outside the gland, PET imaging allows you to see where it's gone. Uh, and so if it's gone to like one or two places, you might opt to just treat those things with some targeted form of therapy like radiation. But if it's gone to more than uh, a few places, six, seven, eight, then uh, systemic therapy comes more into play, things like chemotherapy or immunotherapy or uh, hormotherapy. So uh, both MRI and PSMA PET have, have uh, just really changed the, the landscape of treatment options today. Now, are there pros and cons of getting treatment locally here now that we have some of these different devices and scans available versus going elsewhere on the mainland? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, again, if I go back to uh, the doctors not having enough time to, to lay out all of the options, uh, and, and, and the thing about prostate cancer is that it's, it's, it's constantly evolving. I mean, things have changed really a lot in the last uh, four, four, four or five years. So, uh, But, yeah, we have treatments, uh, some old treatments that have been available on the mainland. For example, in uh, radiation uh, we don't have a proton uh, radiation treatment facility here, uh, and that's a type of radiation where it's not a pass-through radiation like uh, X-ray or photon beam, which is the more standard radiation. Uh, but in regular uh, photon radiation, that the, the radiation enters the body, hitting healthy tissue cells, hits the prostate gland, and then exits the body. Um, so there is the potential risk of, of causing damage to, say, the rectum or the, the bladder. With proton beam, it enters the body, hits the prostate gland, but never exits. And so that not having the exit uh, minimizes the, the potential risk of side effects. But that's one treatment that's not available here. And then there are other newer treatments in the last uh, couple of years of mainly for advanced stage prostate cancer, something called lutetium-177, which uh, is now available. It's been available in places like uh, Germany and Australia for a number of years now, and it's only been recently approved, uh, FDA-approved. But there are some restrictions to that, and so not everybody might qualify for that. And then... Uh, so yes, uh, we do have treatments uh, outside of uh, Hawaii, and uh, but again, that involves um, some travel. Uh, you, 
and it involves financial considerations. Um, uh, might also impact on uh, other health issues you might have. And so these are all things you have to think about uh, before pursuing uh, treatment outside of Hawaii. Now, how long ago was it that you had prostate cancer? I got diagnosed uh, way back in 2011. I got treated uh, with, uh, coincidentally, I got treated with uh, proton beam radiation therapy in Houston, Texas uh, at MD Anderson. And uh, I was, uh, I did something though back then that was very unconventional. This is uh, part of our man, um, philosophy is to, to tell men is to, to be their own advocate. Um, what I did was I put myself on hormone therapy right after radiation, which is something that uh, is, is a good option today. Uh, but back then, uh, none of the doctors were recommending that. So, um, What made you do it? For me, I, I did that because, uh, for one thing, uh, my PSA, uh, if I look, and again, this is where I go back to understanding your own cancer. Uh, my PSA was 18.8 uh, at initial diagnosis, which was uh, not consistent with my P uh, with with my Gleason score of uh, three plus four seven. And so, and the other thing is, I I did something called a color Doppler imaging, uh, something again that was not available locally. Um, to identify, uh, because my biopsy had been done on a random basis, I did not have the benefit of MRI to do the uh, targeted biopsy. So I had no assurance that I, there were not other lesions in my gland uh, that could cause my PSA to go up as high as it was. Uh, when they did the color Doppler imaging, I, I was told that it was somewhat close to the prostate wall, and any lesion that's close to the prostate wall increases the uh, probability of microscopic cells having leave left the gland. So for me, again, for me, it was the idea was to do whatever I could to not only get rid of the cancer, but also to do what I could to prevent the cancer from coming back. So the hormone therapy that I put myself on was uh, keep in mind that the radiation was used to target cancer in the gland without really consideration of any uh, microscopic cells that may have escaped the gland. So hormone therapy being a systemic therapy was intended to try and address that. It's, it, was, it was my way of sort of buying insurance <laughs> to, uh, to keep the cancer from uh, coming back. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We're talking with Gary Kim, and he's telling us his story on prostate cancer and some of the information that he shares with other men who happen to come to the US2 Prostate Cancer Support Group. When we come back, we're going to hear some more about some of the decisions that he's made and some of the other ways that we can encourage men to be proactive and be their own best advocate in making sure that they get tested and or treated for prostate cancer. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are doing part two of our September Prostate Cancer Awareness Month discussions on prostate cancer. And we have Gary Kim. He is a prostate cancer survivor, facilitator for the US2 Prostate Cancer Support Group. And we're talking today about his journey and some of the different things that he proactively did as an advocate for himself when he was diagnosed back in 2011. And have you, you know, Gary, I, I find it amazing that you decided, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do this additional treatment. I want to make sure that I don't have any recurrence and I don't have any problems. And these days, hormone treatment actually has become almost uh, ubiquitously offered for people who have any thought that there might be any metastases. But how did you do? So you did hormone therapy for a certain amount of time. And did you happen to have any recurrence or have you been cancer free? No, I have, I have no recurrence whatsoever. Um, the only thing with uh, hormone therapy, ADT, uh, androgen deprivation therapy, is um, that it took nine months for the drug to clear my system. Mm. And during that time, it's important to monitor both your PSA to see uh, that it remains low. In my case, uh, my PSA, well, today my PSA is at 0 .03, 0, 0.03, um, and my testosterone went back to around 550. So that's the goal there. Um, the thing about uh, homotherapy, you need to be concerned about, while there are short-term side effects like uh, uh, fatigue and loss of sex drive and uh, hot flashes, uh, people who are on long-term uh, uh, hormone therapy, I would say a year or more, uh, they need to be concerned with some of the longer-term side effects of, of hormone therapy. These would be things like uh, increased risk for cardiovascular disease, uh, increase for bone density loss, um, possible increased risk for dementia. And so these are things that if you're on long-term hormone therapy and that would be the case for many, uh, many uh, advanced stage cancer patients. There are clinical trials ongoing now, though, that are trying to assess the duration of ADT. Uh, you know what is right for each person. There is a movement towards more precision medicine, and uh, so uh, hopefully over time. Uh, you know, right now, AD, how long you stay on ADT is, is a somewhat on the arbitrary side, whether you should be four months, six months, a year, two years. Uh, I think each man will, will differ uh, on that. And, uh, but I think they're, they're trying to do more clinical trials to, to bring that into a more uh, uh, a figure that would tie or relate to any one particular person's uh, situation. Well, I think you're right about personalized medicine, and one size doesn't always fit all. Yes. You know, now one of the other things is I have certainly have a good friend and colleague who said, do not underestimate the side effects of ADT. That using hormone deprivation therapy is quite difficult, and it has a lot of hot flashes, side effects, fatigue, muscle muscle fatigue, and, uh, you know, that's it is not an easy decision to consider doing that, but it also is 
Very important if there's any sense of or any question of metastases or you have an aggressive cancer to try and make sure that you don't have long-term sequelae and find that it did spread. And mm -hmm. if you localize your treatment just to the prostate, but it has already moved outside of there, then you won't get the best outcome. Yes. Um, the other thing, uh, just to add on to that, though, is uh, even if you're on first-level ADT, uh, you still have to monitor the, the PSA. Because if the PSA starts to rise while you're on hormone therapy, it says, it is telling the doctor that uh, that first-line hormone therapy is not working. And that's what is called castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And that is uh, kind of a more of a lethal form of, of prostate cancer. At that point, doctors generally prescribe secondary ADT drugs. And so that's that gets into the realm of when you get into advanced-stage cancer, treatment become that much more complicated. So to put that thing in perspective, though, this is why if you go back to uh, things like screening, screening makes it uh, where you identify the cancer at its earliest stage, and at its earliest stage, you can treat it earlier so that you prevent the cancer from getting to that point. Yeah, I was looking at some statistics before the show this evening, and the five-year survival for early-stage prostate cancer is 100%. Mm -hmm. And the survival for metastatic prostate cancer that has already left the prostate, five-year survival is 32%. Mm -hmm. So there is a significant difference in survival rate, but also in just the general way that people have pain and suffering if they happen to ca catch their diagnosis at a later stage, which you're right, comes back to the screening aspect. And I think there's been some varying recommendations that over the last couple of years have shifted from yearly PSA at certain ages to do the PSA up until a certain age to now start with younger populations checking it sooner or if there's a family history or high risk. So I think we are moving more towards this personalized aspect of medicine, taking a look at what are all of the factors, your family history, your genetics, your ethnic history, all these different factors that might lead to doing screening testing either more often or doing it at an earlier age or making sure that you're very careful in when you do that test. For for men that you know who are afraid to do the screening, what sort of advice do you give them if, they, if they're worried about even testing for it? Well, the first thing I would say is that if you have a history of cancer in your family, uh, I would say uh, that's you have a higher, much higher risk uh, of getting that type of cancer. The thing about um, the cancer in the family is that certain mutations are common to more than one cancer. Um, one of the most common mutations is BRCA1, BRCA2, and that's common in not just prostate cancer, but it's common in breast, pancreatic, ovarian, and to some degree melanoma. So even if your parents, let's say your mother had breast cancer and you were the son, you are at higher risk of getting prostate cancer. So uh, just knowing that, I think you should do, uh, we recommend that for men who have a history of cancer in the family, uh, that they start screening as early as age 40. So, uh, and, and those that are diagnosed initially with advanced stage cancer is also it's recommended that they do uh, genetic testing and PSA screening at, at its at the earliest possible time. 
Well, I certainly would agree that there has to be a an individualized approach to looking at screening for prostate cancer and also the very same, as you mentioned, for the diagnosis and then also the treatment. Now, if men wanted to hear more about the US2 support group, which is not necessarily the traditional support group, it's really a way that they can get more information, where could they go to? How would they find that out? Uh, I would say the first step would be going to our website, hawaiiprostatecancer.org. And on that website, uh, we have information about how to join the support group. Uh, We're mainly there not just to provide moral support, but mainly we're we're there to provide educational support. Uh, And so I think that's important. All right. Well, absolutely it is. Thank you very much, Gary Kim, for being on the show this evening. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hpr.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Thank you for joining us right here on The Body Show. (laughs) 